River Valley. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Thank you, Jim Connie. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for tuning in. A beautiful day today. Looking like we uh, may uh, kiss 90 degrees again today. Thanks for spending more, uh, part of your morning here with us on the uh, program. Love to hear from you. Let me give you the phone numbers as we uh, kick off the program here. You can join us at 244-1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. And you can also reach us on our toll-free lines at 877-291-8255. That's 877-291-TALK. We're going to get right down to business this morning. What a great pleasure to have joining us here live in our studios this morning. The uh, former Chief Justice of the Vermont Supreme Court, Jeff Amistoy, is joining us. We're going to chat about his uh, book, Slavish Shore, about a 19th century Boston attorney who represented some of the, uh, well, let's call them the disadvantaged. We'll have him explain what that's all about. Uh, and let me note before we get any further here, Jeff is going to be right down the road here talking about his book on Saturday at Bridgeside Books, and that'll be coming up at 2.30 in the afternoon. And, of course, you can uh, join us right now if you have any questions or comments at 244-1777, toll-free 877-291-8255. Of course, Jeff Amistoy, I think, is best known for being the author of the 1999 decision in the Baker versus State case, which ultimately led to the passage of civil unions by the Vermont legislature, the first legislature to do that. So we're going to chat a little bit about that. We'll talk about this most recent court case that came out of the Supreme Court, and we will also talk about his book as well. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you this morning? Excellent. Thank you, Mark. Um, let's actually, I want to begin with the, the uh, 1999 decision in the, uh, the Baker case. Uh, because now, with the passage of time here, it's been fascinating to see how this case has kind of taken on a really a different perspective. So at the time when this decision came out, you ultimately left it up to the legislature to make a remedy in this. So why did you go that route and not just declare that marriage was legal? Well, I think um, given the extraordinary rapidity with which uh, the same-sex equal marriage quality issue has evolved in the, in the United States, it's difficult to remember what the context was uh, back in uh 1998, when that case was argued, and then 1999, uh, when it was uh, decided, um, there had only been uh, two courts in the country that had uh, looked at the issue favorably. Uh, one was the Supreme Court of uh, Hawaii, and there was an immediate pushback in Hawaii that resulted in uh, that decision being overturned by popular vote. Um, there had been a trial court in Alaska that had uh, looked favorably upon the claim for marriage equality. Uh, and that resulted in the uh, uh, Alaskan uh, passage of a state constitutional amendment prohibiting uh, that. In California, there had already been a vote uh, restricting a marriage to heterosexual couples. So uh, at the time the issue was argued in front of the Vermont Supreme Court, um, I think it was, I think even advocates would say uh, there were very few avenues uh, left open to try to advance that issue. Um, and, of course, it was set in the context of the, the uh, Defense of Marriage Act uh, signed by President Clinton and supported by 
something like 98% of the Congress. So, um, speaking now uh, to the political context, I guess, not to the, not to the legal issues, but um, I s- certainly had in my mind uh, the, f- the fact that uh, not too long ago, in, in, uh, before then, uh, 1986, the, the Equal Rights Amendment in Vermont had failed to pass, uh, notwithstanding that uh, was supported by a Republican Attorney General, that was me, a Republican Senator, uh, Jim Jeffords at the time, and that we had uh, Madeline Kuhn as governor. So I think that was always a probably a lesson that I uh, kept in mind in terms of uh, looking at how ready people were to advance an issue. Um, and again, I'm not speaking legal here, but just from a from a political context. So that obviously was one thing that I think probably had some bearing on uh, the potential remedy. Um, of course, as a as a court, we found. Um, it was a violation of uh, the Vermont Constitution Common Benefits Clause not to provide equal rights and benefits of marriage. And we kept jurisdiction over the case, but provided the uh, uh, legislature with an opportunity to make the remedy. Um, and uh, I think that the remedy they chose, the civil union remedy, at the time was uh, one that I think was uh, exactly right for what had to take place. And I think, in, I think Vermonters ought to be proud of uh, how that issue evolved in Vermont. I think it stood as a lesson for the rest of the country. It put uh, in front of everyone some of the very difficult discussions about homosexuality. Uh, it did it in a way that I think was uh, civil and constructive, um, but also showed the extent to which um, it was an extraordinarily difficult issue. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was the Take Back Vermont movement at the time. Right. Um, so it's... Uh, it's difficult to capture that time, uh, except if you lived through it. Uh, and um, as one who did, uh, I think all in all, the, the remedy uh, in the court's approach was one that probably advanced the issue. It's interesting, though, to hear you say that there is not only a legal context, but also a political context. Yeah, and I think um, I've written this sort of extensively, but I, wanna, I don't want to speak for the court, obviously, and, I, and the and the, the Baker opinion stands, uh, including the concurring opinions of, of Justice Dooley and Justice Johnson, I think stands, it's something like 96 pages total. So uh, one can look at that for the legal rationales and legal arguments. But I do think, and I've written about this elsewhere, that state constitutional courts um, have to keep in mind that they're just making an opening argument uh, in constitutional law and that's because in, in in states as opposed to the the federal government it's very easy to uh, amend state constitutions and in fact one of the things we we saw immediately uh in the in the backlash to the claim for marriage equality is was 36 states amended their constitutions to prohibit uh same-sex marriage in many cases even civil unions and it was very, it's very easy to do in most states. It's a little tougher in Vermont, some of the eastern states, but in, in many states it can be done almost by popular, all, by popular vote as soon as it's put on the ballot. So in contrast to the United States Supreme Court in which uh, to pass a constitutional amendment, um, it's extraordinarily difficult. Uh, it's only happened, it's happened very rarely in, in, in the history of our, our country. So I think it, it was a... It, from from a from a legal perspective in terms of state constitutional law, I think one had to recognize 
that uh, the legislature uh, and, the, and the voters themselves were going to have a, a tremendous uh, amount of input, and therefore you wanted to structure the, the dialogue about it in a way that, that uh, constitutionalized the issue, gave uh, some people some understanding that it was about civil rights, but also uh, allowed a process to take place. So it was, it was, if you had ruled for marriage, you're concerned there would be too big a backlash and the discussion wouldn't really have happened. Yeah, I, I mean, it's one of those, uh, we'll never know what the answer will be. I mean, I think my own judgment was, if looking at it from the standpoint, I think Howard Deans is probably the same. I think most people in the legislature were the same. Had we had the court ruled for marriage equality at that time, same-sex marriage, we would have seen a constitutional amendment on the ballot in Vermont now. Uh, you know, there's different ideas about whether that would have passed or not. But that would have been the... I don't think the legislature would have... Uh, I, I think the legislature's reaction to, to uh, a Supreme Court decision in Vermont at that time that that uh, found for the plaintiffs in same-sex marriage would have been to put the, uh, put the issue to a popular vote. And I, I don't think that would have... Uh, my my judgment was that would have uh, delayed um, a way to address the issue by by a decade or so. We're talking with former Vermont Chief Justice Jeff Amistoy. You can join us at 244-1777, toll-free 877-291-8255. Did you know how big a deal this decision was at the time, or is it only looking at it in the rearview mirror? Well, it seemed like... <laughs> I think, first of all, I, I think anyone... Almost anyone would be astounded at the way that to, to to have said then that you know 16 years from then 16 years from the day Baker has decided the United States Supreme Court was going to recognize marriage equality in the United States. I think I think that I don't I doubt there was anybody who thought that. Um, I certainly thought that the issue was. Uh, I knew it was a very significant case, and we all and we all did, and so did it, obviously. Is the most significant to the to the uh, the parties involved, um, and I think, given the context I described earlier, it was, I think, relatively clear that this was a this was a turning point in terms of where the uh, issue might go uh, for the ad, for the advocates. So you know, we understood that um, it was a very very important case. Um, did did anyone foresee that uh, it would lead to uh, such a, a rapid? Exp- uh, uh, I mean, if we could back up a little bit, at the next there really was the immediate reaction to the Vermont decision was that were were, K- were states passing constitutional amendments prohibiting same-sex marriage? It was uh, four years before the uh, next successful court case took place, and of course that was. Uh, the Goodrich case in Massachusetts that right. did recognize same-sex marriage, but you know, for for a while, Vermont was the only case, only state that had uh, any recognition of uh, the rights and benefits of marriage for same-sex couples. Uh, and then when Massachusetts did it, there were only two states that had done it. So it was uh, again, um, I think we understood that it was uh, extraordinarily significant, significant issue, but probably underestimated the extent to which. Um, it would begin to change how the country looked at the issue. I'm not clear when you say that you doubt that anybody would have thought that it would have led to something 16 years later. Are you saying 16 years later is a short amount of time or a long amount of time? A short amount of time. That 
that the that the I, I don't think anyone at that point of time would have believed that the would have projected that the United States Supreme Court would have found a constitutional uh, protection for same-sex marriage uh, or violation of the Equal Protection Clause for same-sex. Uh, that that uh, that I just think I just don't think um, even the advocates would have thought uh, that would have been conceivable in that that amount of time. Only now that just a decade and a half is never. It's too long for those who have been discriminated against, obviously. But uh, in terms of the history of social movements and, and particularly advancements of civil rights within courts, um, 15 or 16 years is, is not a long time. And particularly, again, when you look at the immediate reaction to, to Baker and to, uh, and to the Massachusetts Goodrich decision, all of which in the first uh, half dozen years were uh, – the currents were running exactly the other way. I mean – uh, presidential candidates were <laughs> campaigning against against the issue. Well, the issue was a hot button issue. Yeah. Uh, so you know, and that was Democrat or Republican. It wasn't. It wasn't as if uh, Democrats were embracing that issue right. in the political context. So I think from for all those reasons, um, I think it it uh, the time seems seems uh, remarkably remarkably rapid again, but uh, never to those who who. Um, and, and particularly the advocates who spent years and years and years uh, building uh, the foundation for this movement. What do you think was the turning point? What what changed it so that it then became the completely different way? I really think uh, the Vermont example. Uh, I think the experience went through and we went through in Vermont. Then became then began to be replicated in many parts of the country. Which once the issue of of homosexuality. Uh, same-sex marriage equality uh, uh, became more open and discussed, uh, and there was a recognition uh, that got beyond stereotypes. Uh, I think that really began to advance uh, a, an understanding of it, and so you know, it no longer became uh, that uh, homosexuals were the other; they were, you know, um, your brother. Yeah, yeah, they were families and and all. And I thought Vermont's. One of the most extraordinary, uh, and again, I I don't want to maximize the courts. I, I thought the Vermont legislature, Tom Little, and and uh, uh, Senate, uh, the House Judiciary Committee, in advancing the issue, holding public hearings, the way they the way they constructed the public discussion, uh, really was one that, that was extraordinary. And um, again, to think back in that time, I think something like four thousand people showed up for. A public hearing on a uh, snowy and, night, and a snowy and a, night, when a blizzard, and uh, and those who discussed the issue were, uh, you know, I mean, there were Vermonters from all different walks of life that were really speaking from the heart. I think it had a tremendous impact on, on I know, on the House Judiciary Committee, and then uh, it had a tremendous impact on the public discussion moving forward. And I think that that kind of discussion became, you know, uh, that began to inform. Uh, the public dialogue, and I think that carried carried forward to uh, uh, the rest of the country. And I think that's one. The, and then, you know, the Supreme Court. Uh, I'm talking about the United States Supreme Court. Uh, you know, I think they were catching up with public opinion. They were certain they weren't leading it. Uh, you know, that was true, in, and that's been true in in other uh, cases. True in Brown versus Board of, Board of Education, I think, in the in the, in the uh, separate but equal case. You know, so the court, it's. Lawyers like to think that the court courts are sometimes the, the uh, 
the front runner is in advancing civil rights, but often that's not the case. And, and I think he, uh, the United States Supreme Court was in many ways reflecting the kind of discussion and, and uh, dialogue that had already taken place in the United States and obviously took place between them as justices, too. Yeah, but, I mean, but you're, you're describing, though, your court did. Being, I mean, I don't want to use the word activist because it's kind of loaded, but you were kind of pushing the issue the way you're describing the Supreme Court being passive. So why why the difference there? Well, so that's a good question. I, I mean, I think, you know, it has a lot to do with the way the issue was framed in Vermont, but the quality of the uh, the, the lawyering. Uh, but certainly... Really? Had, Come on, really? It, I mean, it, it, isn't, it, the, isn't the issue fundamentally the same no matter who's authoring the, the, uh, the brief? Well, I think when I say the quality of the lawyering, I think... What I mean is that you had a uh, you had a plaintiffs uh, uh, you had plaintiff you had the lawyers for the plaintiffs who had spent um, a really an extraordinary amount of time preparing um, and framing the case, and I think that's uh, that was useful uh, because it then brought in to the. Uh, discussion. We had amicus friends of the court briefs from, I don't know, something like, you know, 65 different organizations. So we had, as it, when that issue was before the, you know, for, before the Vermont Supreme Court, uh, we had the benefit of some of the uh, best briefing we could have from all over the, all over the country, really all over the world, because the issue was that significant to uh, those on, on both, both sides. Um, I think, uh, I remember, uh, seeing Chief Justice Rehnquist, at, who had a summer place in Greensboro, right. at one time at a luncheon, and he was asked about uh, activist courts, and he he said, "Well, I find that uh, d- term is used by uh, depends on whether you've won the case or lost the case," uh, and uh, I think there's some some truth to that. I mean, fundamentally, the 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 the, the Baker case you know, found a constitutional basis, obviously, for uh, the claims the plaintiffs made in the Common Benefits Clause. And, uh, you know, that really was that really was the bottom line. Um, but uh, I think Vermont had... One of the reasons why I think Vermont... Uh, I don't know if activist is the correct word, but uh, the Vermont legislature had already passed uh, legislation that allowed same-sex couples to adopt children. This is prior to the Baker decision... Uh, most people don't recognize that. Uh, I don't think there's a place in the United in when when they talk about domestic partnership in Sweden and other or the, other places at the time. It was true that they had the rights and benefits of marriage, but even even the, even in the Scandinavian countries at that point in time, they did not allow adoption by uh, same-sex uh, couples, which Vermont had already uh, legislature had already approved. So, uh, and again, that was in response to a Vermont Supreme Court decision. Uh, before I ever came on the before I ever came on the court, so th- again, those are all reasons that uh, I think uh, the, the case was framed in a way that allowed you know careful consideration of the constitutional issues. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't framed that way at the national level. Well, it certainly was framed that way at the national level, in you know, fifteen or sixteen years later. But okay, it, but, but it didn't. So you didn't get. I mean. Um, Advan- any advancing uh, one's case, and, and particularly if you look back, for example, the history of uh, arguing uh, uh, separate but equal. I mean, the lawyers for the NAACP and, and those who are looking for that to, to 
looking for the kind of case that would move the the United States Supreme Court to address separate but equal spent the better part of 20 years framing that issue and trying to bring that case up and that's that's what happened in uh, same-sex marriage and I think had the case been heard by the the United States Supreme Court five years ago uh, it probably would have been a different result is is activist a fair word to describe the decision or not uh, well I don't think it's a useful word you know I think it's a it's a uh, because I think it, as you say, it's a loaded term. So, you know, result any oriented court or activist court uh, that can be used. You know, again, I, I find it's used for progressives. Have been calling the Roberts Court an activist court because they're unhappy with its, its conservative decisions. You know, and so if you re, if you spend enough time looking at the way law journals talk about this kind of stuff, you know, I, I just find that the phrase is is one that's is not uh, useful. Um, and again, you know, any decision uh, by a particularly a court of last resort ought to ought to be judged on the merits of its constitutional analysis. One of the phrases you did find useful, though, is this: a recognition of our common humanity. Where'd you come up with that? Uh, well, again, it, I went. I I thought it was important. Uh, to go back to my my premise that uh, in state constitutional discussions, uh, the people have uh, more of a say, and a, a Supreme Court in a, in a constitutional in a state constitutional setting is just the opening argument. Um, and again, recognizing the context of how this issue was likely to be addressed, it seemed to me that um, you the opinion ought to be. Uh, framed in a way that allowed Vermonters and the legislature to discuss it not only in terms of uh, the, the the legal issues and the constitutional issues but also in human terms and um, so I, I looked for language that I thought sort of that captured that uh, uh, because I thought that's the way the issue was going to be discussed I mean it, it, if we if we'd use a, a strict scrutiny analysis, a legal term, and, and uh, for a specially protected class, uh, I thought that would probably get the whole discussion off on the on the wrong, on the wrong premise. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I thought that if the court used some language that spoke to, um, you know, the very human element. I mean, no one could deny this touched uh, the very core of what it meant to be a human being and the core of what how people looked at their society and the institution of marriage and all the rest. So it went to some very human issues, and I thought if the, some language in the decision reflected that, that would be useful to further the discussion. Did, did you know that that particular phrase would take on almost a um, Neil Armstrong, one small step kind of uh, uh, stature? Uh, no. That, that I, I, I did look for language, though, that uh, I remember at the time thinking about... Uh, language that John Kennedy had used uh, I think it, I think it was his, in his American University speech on uh, when he was advocating a test ban treaty and, and it's something like we all live on the same planet we all we all breathe the same air so that not to equate them not to, not in any way to equate make an equation between the two but but the context of uh, thinking about the broader range of uh, Humanity, I think, was an important one because, again, I, you know, I believe that the issue uh, 
was not going to be settled by a, the court's legal analysis. It just wasn't. There was going to be a legislative reaction and there's going to be a public reaction and um, people were going to talk about it in human terms and he wanted to I thought it was important that one recognize that mm-hmm. um, I want to get to your book here one last question on this and then we'll take a break here so am I understanding you to say that you're not surprised because of the way that the system works that it took 16 years after the Baker decision to get to full-fledged gay marriage in this country I'm not su- I'm I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised that, well, I guess I'd say, I'm surprised that the court reached the decision within 16 years. <clears throat> if you'd asked me at the time, if you'd asked me in 1999, uh, when we, after when the Baker decision was released, if I thought that, uh, that uh, 15 or 16 years from now, it would, the uh, United States Supreme Court would adopt some, a similar analysis and find the marriage equality for the country, I would have said no. So from that standpoint, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm surprised. I'm, uh, but again, I think uh, the one of the benefits of the Baker decision was it it helped move uh, the advancement of that issue in a way that I think was constructive and uh, led to a uh, a resolution of the issue uh, by by the United States Supreme Court in, in uh, more quickly than that would have happened otherwise. What was the personal backlash for you? Uh, not as bad as the personal backlash, I think, too, um, for legislators who I think uh, then. But you know, I I got some pointed mail, and uh, you know, you had to add some security, and and uh, there was uh, the kinds of things that happen when it's, when you issue a controversial decision, and this was you know more controversial. More controversial than most. So, what what does that mean? I don't know what the typical thing that happens in a controversial ruling. Uh, well, you get, uh, you know, you might get some some calls that, uh, or some mail that uh, speaks speaks to uh, what I don't know. Your intellect. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. I would say, uh, or you know, sometimes veiled threats. I mean, there's a that's that happens. It happens more often in trial in trial court decisions. I mean. You know, you're dealing with uh, decisions that uh, touch, sometimes touch issues that uh, folks react very vehemently to. So, you know, I think any trial court judge in Vermont would tell you that a family court decision can you know, result in some pretty yep. um, difficult circumstances for, ju- you know, for everyone, including judges. And so uh, it wasn't surprising that this particular issue, uh, you know, prompted some people to talk about it. More direct action, I guess I'd say. Was there anything that was a legitimate threat that was followed up, or was it all? Did you just sort of let it be blow off steam? Yeah, I mean, I think again, I think the legislature got. I mean, I think there was added. You know, clearly there was added security at the court, and there's added security to legislature. And I think you know some legislators. I think I'm, uh, I, I can't speak to their own own experiences, but I, my guess is um, they had more specific uh, reactions than we did. So. Um, but there was no question that it was an issue that was on everybody's mind. When you saw lawmakers later losing their seats because of their vote on this, what was your reaction to that? Well, it it, it certainly did not surprise me that there was a uh, there was going to be a backlash and a repercussions for 
uh, however one decided to issue, the, uh, however one decided to issue. Am I, um, I, th- I thought, you know, when people talk about the courage of a court in deciding this kind of issue, I think it's that kind of an adjective is m- description is misplaced. But I think when you talk about the courage of the legis- legislator voting, uh, n- knowing uh, that they're going to give up their uh, their political life, that that really took courage. And you know, in this in, in Vermont, we had several in this case, in this instance, we had several examples that Marion Milne was one, uh, John Edwards another. So you know, I thought. Um, they knew, they knew early on that their vote was going to cost them uh, re-election, and more than re-election. So I, th- I thought it was, my reaction was um, that, that I had great respect for them. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll um, talk with Jeff Amistoy, the former Vermont uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice, about his new book, Slavish Shore. We'll take a short break. We'd love to hear from you at 244-1110. 244-1110. 